Welcome to Simple Evolution, the show where we try to evolve through honest conversation. Each week, we break down thought-provoking news and interesting findings from science and the humanities. Making sense of our dynamic world requires meaningful conversations. Our aim with this podcast is to further understand the world and our place in it. Wear a hard hat, but keep an open mind. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back again to Simple Evolution. Um, for this week's episode, we're going to talk about Afghanistan. Uh, there's a number of interesting stories and articles coming out of Afghanistan in the last couple of weeks um, since the U.S. pulled out on August 30th. It's been almost two months, and there's been a variety of developments um, facing the the ongoing crises that are they're happening there with food shortages and their economic crisis and the Taliban's leadership. So after a 20-year occupation, the U.S. left almost two months ago, and during that time, during the latter years of the U.S. occupation, 40% of the GDP of the country was international aid funds. So all international aid funds as of right now have been stopped at the behest of Western powers while they argue um, what should be done with the Taliban government. Should they be recognized? Um, should they not be recognized? Should they have a trade embargo, more sanctions, it's all up in the air at the moment. But the ones that are paying the ultimate price are the civilians on the ground. And those are some of the stories we're going to get into today. And we'll I'll pass it over to Brandon right now to talk about the first one, which is the most harrowing. Yeah, for sure. So just as Elliot already mentioned, Afghanistan is very dependent on foreign aid. So again, 40% of their GDP was coming from foreign sources. So as a result, once that funding dries up, um, there's a lot of issues within the country. And so one of the shocking things that we'd like to discuss to begin is just the idea that some families are even considering and some are actually pulling the trigger on selling their children to make ends meet. So meaning they may sell a daughter or a son, which will provide them with a small amount of money that will last them for the next few months in terms of food and, and basic necessities. So what we're also seeing in Afghanistan is we're seeing inflation of common items. So we're seeing skyrocketing prices for cooking oil and wheat, which only adds to the issue, um, especially when you don't have foreign aid. You have workers who obviously haven't even been paid in months mm. since the conversion of, say, a, a more Western, Western government to occupation by the Taliban. So I guess one thing, too, that I want to discuss in this early going is we have a lot of issues in terms of finance being pulled out, so now people are suffering. Do you think this financial aid will come now from an Eastern power to then hopefully start to make a tie with the Taliban? Because I think a lot of countries have incentives to operate in Afghanistan in terms of, say, access to, to minerals and mining and in general supply chain. Right, so China's the big, the big regional player, although not a direct neighbor, or maybe it is a direct neighbor. Yeah, it is a direct neighbor, right? Because it borders Xinjiang, yeah. um, is the biggest player in the region, obviously, and uh, they've already given the uh, Taliban some some money. I think about thirty one million dollars, which is not that much and doesn't really cover um, most of their problems. It's just kind of a buffer. And that comes in exchange uh, for guaranteeing peace and trying to keep their crazier regional 
um, terrorist groups at bay. The Taliban wants to keep at bay because China's Belt and Road Initiative, the the, the trade um, mega project that they're they're trying to build all over Asia, and they don't want that to be interfered with. So China has has come to the aid of the Taliban, um, and other other players too want stability in the region, but it's hard to create flourishing trade with, first of all, an unpredictable government, I'd say, um, and governments, you know, giving them some credit. They don't even have really a functioning system with, with bureaucrats or anything like that. Um, but I think one of the main reasons they also, like you alluded to, want um, stability is China has a habit of of cutting some interesting deals with global south countries. Um, so in this case, they would go into Afghanistan and try and take advantage of their billions of dollars of mineral deposits, like you mentioned, and they just want peace in exchange for that, and then basically take all the mineral deposits and, and give the Taliban probably pennies in return, but they'd give them other things like uh, contracts to build more infrastructure and try and help them with their economic development. Um, but really, we've seen this in a lot of countries where China comes in, gives the government a little bit of what they need right now, but butchers them in the long term, like gets a rights to, to lots of natural resources when the, the global south country really doesn't have the means to extract it themselves. Yeah, no, for sure. And yeah, I think that's what's interesting, what you mentioned in terms of China being the first player to offer money, mm-hmm. because you think $31 million could be a large sum, but then when you realize how much, I think the estimate was actually uh, $1 to $3 trillion for all the, the minerals within Afghanistan. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. But what's crazy is what I think is happening there in terms of being first to the table to offer financial incentive is if you have access to the resources that you crave, then to your point... China will probably take what they want and then they're not going to make a fair trade in terms of giving uh, the Taliban some of the the return profit. So I guess to stay on the trend of financial aid. So basically what's happened is we have the U.S., we have a Western power that has now left and there's been a political vacuum, there's been a financial vacuum. What becomes interesting though is it's tough to say whether even the funds that will be given to Afghanistan, even though most countries are probably motivated by by ulterior motives, and it might not be clear exactly why they're giving the financial investment to the now Taliban-run Afghanistan, is it's not clear that this money will trickle down to the civilians. Oh, of course not. That was It's uh, one thing I failed to mention was the fact that you could give this money to the leaders of the Taliban, but I imagine they're just as corrupt as... as other global south countries we've seen if not more so so the taliban will take an inordinate percentage at the beginning exactly and then the people who really need it who are starving at the bottom won't see any of it and just so we're clear the the first story that that kind of caught my eye so we began to talk start talking about this was one family who had i think three or four children um, the dad used to, during the stability, somewhat stability, of the U.S. occupation, used to collect garbage for money mm-hmm. and then sell what he could. But now that um, he can't make money off that, he's had to sell, and his wife has had to sell their, their newest-born baby girl, who's about six months old, for $500 cash. Yeah. And that's 
a sum that would keep them going for the next couple months. But it was insane to watch this this video on BBC, and it was coupled with stories about how a million children could die fairly soon because of malnutrition, and those shots of yeah, very skinny babies in, in, in hospitals where the healthcare system was propped up entirely on international aid. The healthcare workers hadn't been paid in so long. And like you're giving up a life for $500 and you don't even really know what yeah. the person's plan is. And the family's future for $500. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't know what the person's plan is that are taking, that who's taking the child. They'll never see it again. I mean, anything could happen to that baby. Yeah, very odd. And just to put this into even more context, around half the population, 22.8 million, face acute food insecurity at the moment right now. So, yeah, Afghanistan's quickly becoming one of the, the big or the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world, surpassing Yemen. Yeah. Just because you have so many people in, like, almost immediate danger while the West kind of twiddles their thumbs. Exactly. And I think it's crazy that it's it's fair to say immediate danger because this is still a story where six months ago this really wasn't on the table and then almost in the span of a finger snap you had the Taliban that were easily able to outmaneuver the forces that remain that kind of the, yeah. the West put in charge and then Kabul was taken and then now you're you, I guess you're seeing more of a kind of the future perspective of, of what this group will do in terms of how mm -hmm. it wants to govern and um, I guess the plans of Afghanistan moving forward. But another interesting thing too is 22.8 million people. That's over half the population. Yeah. So we're talking about over half the Afghanistan population is in danger of facing food shortages as winter. And it's not a small population. Either, no, not at all. Which is crazy. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting to note as well that the Taliban, while they were an insurgent group, um, their income was primarily from the opium trade, which is illegal. Yeah. But, they can't run a country, basically, of however many, almost 50 million people on the opium trade. <laughs> it's, it's next to impossible. And because of you know, their, their lack of actual um, governmental ability and Afghanistan's lack of infrastructure, they can't even really take advantage of the resources at their disposal, like mining or, or whatever oil reserves they had left, because they don't have the extractive means, because it's you know, highly... Um, um, it takes a lot of money to, to build these kind of extractive systems. So that's also another another point there. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard because I understand where the Western countries are, are coming from. You don't want to, like, let this go. You don't want to let um, an insurgent group or a terrorist organization come in, start running a country, and then be recognized right away. Like, I, I wouldn't do that if I was the U.S. either. I wouldn't want to, like promote that because then maybe more insurgent groups will will have more wind in their sails but on the flip side where's where does the spectrum stop you don't want to recognize them on one end uh, but you can't let you know you half can't the ignore population them either. Die. yeah exactly um so it's a real struggle right now within global development and international relations circles for sure because you might not be thrilled with say who's running the country but the citizens matter just as much as they did previously so exactly it's, it's trying to figure out you now have these barricades in place where the ease of financial aid not that it, it was easy but just it, it's only become more difficult to help the average citizen in afghanistan today mm -hmm. 
And so I think another interesting thing too is, I mean, time is the great teacher in terms of understanding if a organization is right to, to govern, is, is good at maintaining power. Because what you also alluded to is just, and what other countries, because I know we'll, we'll briefly mention China, but we'll, we'll mention uh, Iran and Pakistan, is just it's unclear whether the Taliban provides stability to Afghanistan right now. That's so right, true. Right now they occupy Kabul, they occupy the capital, but it's not the case that it's going to be kind of a battle of different groups to try to ensure control of Afghanistan. Yeah. And I think this could be the first segue to maybe talking about more in depth, the powerful neighbors, as they're called in, in another article that, uh, that we read for this talk, which is just that the Taliban needs to ensure good alliances with neighboring countries, mm -hmm. which would help keep them in power in Afghanistan. Yeah. And that's also kind of a win-win because these other countries, they want, they do not, you don't want chaos of another country that you share border with, right? Because it's just the, the element of uncertainty, unpredictability. You don't know if violence is going to end up trickling into your own country. Right. So these, these countries want Afghanistan to be stable. The question is just when the dust settles, like what would a stable Afghanistan look like? Yeah, and it's hard to you know have stability when um, you have all these different um, splinter groups who are, who are more um, crazy than the next one, who are more fundamentalist, especially when you have a, like, a, a religious society and a religious government. Uh, everyone has different interpretations of religion, and that's going to cause different split groups. But the two actors that we haven't mentioned, the two state actors, which are neighbors we haven't mentioned, were Pakistan and Iran. And they both wish trade with, with Afghanistan mm -hmm. because they didn't have such a friendly government in Kabul when the U.S. was running it. So, yeah, Pakistan wishes for renewed trade and a more friendly government. Um, and Iran also wishes, you know, more trade because they're constantly under threat of U.S. sanctions. Um, they have sanctions right now put on them. Um, so this is, this is, they maybe see it as a good thing and are, are happy to recognize the Taliban government, although still wary. Like yeah. they're, they're not novice governments, those two, and they're familiar with violence and they've seen, you know, everything from the civil, Syrian civil war to 20 years of an Afghanistan occupation. And um, I think all this does is it drives, it drives powers in that region to become more associated with China. Mm -hmm. And like we talked about before, China will, will happily um, side with any kind of country that has negative relations with the U.S. because they'll want to build an anti-U.S. Oh, coalition. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I think we'll, we'll speak on China a bit later. So just to kind of take a, a bit more of a deep dive into Pakistan and Iran, what I find interesting and what you just brought up is Iran is basically suffering from U.S. sanctions against it, so it's looking for more stable, close economic partners. Mm -hmm. And so it's hoping that the Taliban become, or rather Afghanistan being occupied by the Taliban now becomes a reliable economic partner that they right. can trade with. What becomes interesting, though, is Afghanistan is landlocked. Yeah. So all the imports that Afghanistan wants would come from basically two main ports in, in the two countries that we've mentioned. So Iran, Iranian ports which these articles are kind of interesting because I guess there's some tie to India owning these ports. Yeah. And so this, I guess, gets at the, the deeper battle that's constantly raged for a very long time between India and Pakistan. Yeah. And so there's, there's kind of this, 
hey, 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 use our ports, like use us for, for imports mm -hmm. where Pakistan is trying to incentivize Afghanistan. Hey, whatever you need, we'll ship it into our ports and then we can bring it to you. Let's be trade partners there. Whereas Iran is trying to ensure that it maintains the stable relationship and, and trading amongst uh, those in Afghanistan. Right. And also Iran's being hit with multiple, you know, multiple refugees, many thousands of refugees yeah. right after the U.S. pulled out because there was, you saw the scenes at the airport that was also happening at the land borders because everyone was in, unsure of what the fuck was going to happen. Yeah. Um, so that's another incentive. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's another, so for those that, you know, want to, I guess, see the real side of the story, the article Elliot mentioned from BBC, there's a good video describing the guy who sold the baby as well as hopefully people have seen the video of people literally trying to hold on to airplanes yeah. that were leaving Kabul. It was the last U.S. forces that were flying out of Afghanistan. And that just points to the fear of the unknown mm -hmm. and the desperation that families will do to ensure any form of safety or security for the future, uh, which I think is very valuable to understand that people will do whatever it takes um, if it ensures doing anything to maintain safety of their family or just to get out of a place where they do not know if they're going to be welcome. Yeah. Where do you fall on the, on, on the spectrum of like, okay, we, we don't want to encourage this kind of behavior from radical groups, but at the same time we can't let, you know, 22 million people starve to death. Yeah. Uh, it, it becomes just really interesting because this is, Obviously, a, a very. I know fresh, you don't have like world leader expertise, yeah, but Brandon was. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting because this is a fresh problem. So I, th I think what's happening is, in terms of the financial aid being pulled now, it's being pulled because they're reassessing how to efficiently be able to get either funds or, more importantly, goods to people in mm -hmm. need. And so I, I think the first step, which we'll probably also segue to, is let's first understand the refugees that are able to either leave the country or who, sorry, leave the country to go to Western countries in terms of Western countries opening their doors to, to a variety of different um, refugees from Afghanistan, as well as the refugees that have already migrated into neighboring countries. So you mentioned Afghanistan residents living yeah. in Iran. In terms of how you get these people aid, this is a tricky thing because you already have, you're, you're trying to understand, I guess, what the Taliban wants in terms of what its policies or its, and I'm not even sure if, if it's even at, it doesn't strike me as it's going to be a very structured type of government, right? With no. like clearly laid out policies, no. clearly laid out projections. No, it's know. probably more of a kleptocracy. Um, and one thing that is interesting is the UN has remained in the ground on Kabul. So that that is a good sign that, okay. that the Taliban hasn't completely kicked every, every, um, um, Say government Western influence. Western yeah. I guess, yeah, the UN is primarily funded by Western countries, yeah. but they recognize that they they could use the help. Um, and that's also why they've you know, reached out to so many different neighboring countries. You touched a little bit about Western response to this problem. And, and one of the last articles that we talked about was uh, the EU's response on the Afghanistan system. Mm -hmm. So uh, Afghanistan asylum, rather. And... For the EU, this represents another scary problem, like the 2015 migration crisis, and they and they think, oh God, like we might have the same kind of um, 
routes of, of people trying to escape Afghanistan and make it to the EU and the EU might get flooded with more millions, which is, you know, a realistic thought. Um, and they want to work with regional Afghan neighbors uh, to deal with this migration problem. So like the, the neighbors who just talked about, like Iran and Pakistan, mm -hmm. they want to try and box this in at the source. Um, and think of that what you will, like you, these people are seeking a better life, but the, but the EU countries are very are very strong on just not wanting any more migration. Um, one of the weird things about these regional deals is they've happened before with countries like Turkey during a lot of when the Syrians were trying to get to the EU. Uh, they made, they gave, I think, two installments of a couple billion dollars the EU did to Turkey to try and stop migrants at land and sea and just turn them back around. Um, but the Turkish authorities were hit with multiple stories about being, you know, aggressive towards the migrants, treating them like dirt and not doing the responsible thing when keeping them or sending them back to their own country. They were very just kind of harsh about it. Um, I know that's kind of ambiguous. Um, so the same approach, if they use that to, to, to get other regional members to box Afghanistan refugees in, it's going to be hit with a lot of criticism probably. Um, yeah, but yeah, but this also, it becomes in, I guess an interesting point to dwell on is just that when we consider EU migration versus say Canada and the U S opening their borders to, to X amount of, of Afghan refugees in this context, the EU is interesting because it's a collection of so many different countries. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen before, sometimes it's not the case that all the countries are on board for immigration. No, of course. But then really. as a result, all it takes is one country. So I, the EU has its problem with regards to immigration in a humanitarian crisis because it's not clear that you're going to have a unanimous decision from every country in the That's EU true. that says, yes, we're happy with. Um, anyone who maybe starts in Germany that can circulate into any other EU no, country. of course not. And I, I, I know I have to take it easy on the EU because the bloc is going through their own crisis right now with Poland um, maybe wanting to exit and that kind of thing. So, oh, well. so the EU's in no hurry to try and add more problems to their already growing list of problems. Yeah. Um, you've seen countries like yeah, Canada, US, UK all come out with okay, we're going to take this amount of Afghan refugees. We have kind of a target number. The EU hasn't provided one just because it's hard to get you know, 20 whatever countries, I think 23 yeah. now. Yeah, it's hard oh, to 27, get 27 yeah. countries now on yeah. the same page. Um, Which just makes sense, right? The, the more voices you have at the table, the harder it is that everyone's going to agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I have to also mention that the, the Western powers, including European powers that were in Afghanistan for a number of years, along with the U.S. coalition, mm -hmm. um, have already taken, when they flew out, have already taken their most of their Afghan allies. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say most of, because I don't know how many allies yeah. they had or translators. But, but they've taken some. They've taken, they've taken their, the, who they could out of, the, out of the country already. So that would mean, yeah, translators or bureaucrats, anyone who worked with, say, French or, or German forces, they tried to take them out and their families out. Um, but obviously, you know, you saw the confusion a couple months ago. I, you can't be that everyone has got out. And um, my mom's friend, who was a journalist in Afghanistan for many years, still has friends on the ground there, mm -hmm. local Afghan Afghanis that have, haven't made it out. So it's, yeah, it's even more personal. Yeah. And I think 
at this point, what's kind of, I guess, useful is, is just to give a little summary. So we have a nation in crisis. It's civili- the outlook on over half the population is very grim for the coming months as, as winter approaches in a variety of provinces. It's not clear that if aid was given, how that aid is going to be distributed. And I think we're both in agreement that it, it if we had to guess, it doesn't seem that there's going to be good aid that's received by the Taliban that's going to be spread out amongst mm-hmm. the, the civilians. Because to, to what you already mentioned, it, it's a it's a divided country, right? There, there's chaos, there's there's issues with instability in the sense that there's no not a, a cohesive government, a cohesive plan of the future of Afghanistan. So as a result, you have different people in different groups. So you have people that are going to be part of the Taliban, then you also are going to have the rise of a variety of different um, groups, I guess, some of which may have militias, and yeah. sure, there's going to be violence and political tension moving forward, but I want to now segue this back to China, okay. because I think this is, is very interesting for a few reasons, so maybe the first one to discuss here is that uh, you have to give, I think, credit where credit is due in terms of China's making it clear that they want to expand and have a global presence. Sure. And so we're seeing that with the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. And it makes it makes a lot of sense in terms of, of, of what Beijing was thinking in terms of giving quick financial aid to the Taliban mm-hmm. to try to establish a rapport, try to establish a connection with them. Because obviously Afghanistan is sitting on, as we already mentioned, a uh, valuation of one to three trillion in, in minerals that, mm-hmm. that China and I guess other players could have access to. But also another thing is just to secure its ability to then continue on its development through Afghanistan. So, yeah, the Belt and Road Initiative, if if we weren't clear enough before, is an initiative by China where they're building roads and bridges throughout Asia to Mm -hmm. try and make China the hub of trade. So their thought process is if we build roads and bridges and tunnels and make it as easy as possible for uh, traders to come to China... Mm-hmm. Um, that that will expand their economic development. And it makes sense. It's just a huge undertaking, but China's very good at these things, usually. They get things done. And you it, have to, they yeah. get things done. And it harkens back to the, the, the ancient Silk Road, mm-hmm. which was in the same area yeah. um, in, in medieval times. One thing I, I, I saw recently, though, was the collapse of um, the Evergrande... Um, the Evergrande company. Oh, yes. And did you see this? I heard about so that. So one yeah. of China's major corporations, building corporations who, who build skyscrapers and develop a lot of China has gone bust. And it's interesting because a lot of the time well, when I see videos of China or, or um, uh, buildings in China, they just build so quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like there isn't a plan to get revenue from them right away. Mm-hmm. They just kind of build build something and then hope that people come. This hasn't been the case with multiple projects. So one of their biggest um, uh, building companies has gone bust. And basically why that is is relevant here is if they dig themselves a hole too quick, it's it's an issue. And the, the same thing could be said for these big infrastructure projects. Um, but that's one of the reasons why they, they take advantage of the, the global south countries that they're doing them in. For sure. Like only bring in Chinese workers um, and acquire a contract and and try and keep as much of the money to themselves as possible. Yeah. And I think the the other reason I, I kind of 
want to focus here is just because when we consider the neighbors of Afghanistan, it's clear that China is the most dominant player yeah. compared to Pakistan and, and Iran. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those are obviously two very large countries, and, and they, they still have influence. But compared to China, they're they're definitely the dominant player here. So yeah, so it, you're seeing, you're starting to see part of the interest in in why China is interested in Afghanistan and in at least having economic ties and good relations with the Taliban in terms of ensuring that their their motivation for what they'd like to do in Afghanistan yeah. can still continue. I mean, it, it wouldn't hurt. Like, it, just yeah, establish sure. good ties with the Taliban. Yeah, exactly. Matter. And what's interesting, too, is uh, we don't need to get into the specific numbers, but when the article was mentioning how long of the border is being shared between Afghanistan and these other neighboring countries... The border of Afghanistan with China is very small mm-hmm. compared to, say, the border with uh, Pakistan right, and Afghanistan. Right, yeah. So, Iran. Uh, well, well, both. Iran is, what, 900? No, you just said Afghanistan twice, but yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's interesting because China has the smallest land border, yet they're, they're clear set on making these connections, right? Mm-hmm. Build, building this massive trillion-dollar infrastructure plan and it's also very smart in the sense that, like I know um, with some African ports, they will build the port. And then if the country cannot pay for it, then part of the plan is that they just get to occupy the port mm-hmm. as incentive. Yeah. So it's this is going to be very interesting because obviously the Middle East is kind of the, the connecting point between East Asia and Eastern Africa. Right. And this is still going to be... A, you know, years, years in the making, potentially mm-hmm. decades to have this thing fully solidified. But you're already seeing the interest with them reaching out financially from the get-go, essentially, yeah. because the the Western power being the U.S., um, and we can also talk about if this move showed kind of weakness in, in terms of the U.S. being a, a superpower. But we're kind of seeing one superpower occupy it to then the transition to another superpower this, yeah. this time in Eastern Yeah, superpower. I mean, the, the China's more selfish. They're not going in with a nation-building kind of goal. They're going in to, to get their own, get their minerals, and kind of to hell with, with the people. Um, yeah. That's what how they've usually operated. Obviously, they won't come out like this, and they'll say all the right things rhetoric-wise. But, uh, yeah, it's yeah so one, more one, superpower, one superpower to another, exactly. Yeah. Afghanistan was called the grave of empires. Yeah. Um, but I think China's probably going about it the smartest. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, from the Ottomans to the, to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, just some final conclusions here. One factor that we haven't mentioned is the water shortage and severe drought yeah. that will act well, also will also impact um, the country's lack of food and water. And this is also bolstered by climate change. Mm-hmm. Um so what I'm hoping comes out of this, because I always try and look at the positive out of any situation, is that we won't have bigger countries occupying smaller countries anymore. Okay. We won't have a country going in there, trying to nation build, trying to do it their way. Um, I think the best way to develop is give the assets to the people and then let them develop themselves. Maybe you can have specialists on the ground, but don't have an overarching system that controls everything. You can have specialist engineers from NGOs, and and they could tell the local people how to build certain things. But given the the drastic difference in cultures and beliefs and religion, 
this project was doomed to fail and it just took 20 years for the US to say, okay, this is not working. But it wasn't working after two. You already mm -hmm. didn't have a lot of the people on their side. And, and <laughs> can't believe I'm gonna say this, to the Taliban's credit, they weren't wiped off the map. They, they stuck around and, and they had grit. Um, they waited they were, for their opportunity. They waited for their opportunity yeah. to strike. And the Taliban's obviously, and Afghanistan's worse off for it in terms of human rights issues. But I think this whole failed project should serve as a deterrent for other major superpowers. Yeah, and I uh, there's a few things I want to I guess add to that. Which the first being, it's very useful to aggregate more people to a cause when you can identify a common enemy. Mm -hmm. And so far, I, th I think for for the Taliban, whatever whatever the number of people actually resonated as being Taliban in 2001, I think it's safe to say that number grew over 20 years of U.S. occupation because. There, there's a clear, there's a clear hatred for, say, the U.S. and, and Western influence in some yeah. of these countries, and so resonating and joining a cause because you you identify the same common enemy, I think, is is very powerful, and so that's also at play. That's also what leads to maybe easier ties between, say, Iran and Afghanistan because yeah. both are definitely yeah. not friendly to, to Western powers given right. given what's happened in recent years. If your daddy gets killed in an airstrike, regardless of if your dad was a U.S. supporter and was just hit by collateral damage, that's going to shake your world and you're going to you're going to join the team that's opposing that. Totally. All it takes is one event that changes your mindset for life mm -hmm. in terms of your ideology and your viewpoint. But... Yeah, I think this is going to be another interesting thing in the sense that there's a lot of issues with helping the civilians, but then at the same time, the Western powers are not looking to help, say, those that are actually running the show. Yeah. And it's tough because I think there's there, it's always difficult because there's the element of trust in terms of if you're giving financial aid, it's probably going to be more difficult to give financial aid to the bottom, like to the masses, mm -hmm. than it is to give financial aid to people that are running the show. Yeah. But then, to what we've already described, we don't really have a lot of trust that any foreign aid given by Western powers is going to be efficiently distributed to yeah. the masses. Yeah. So realistically, the Taliban could probably be like, "Hey, thanks for this aid." Yeah, and, and they'll then, just also they could get complacent and be like, "Okay, we'll just sit here and smoke our cigars while the international community takes care of our struggling civilians." Yeah, for sure. And so it's um, you know not only so you've got the food shortage, you have the water shortage caused by recent droughts, you have winter, which means colder temperatures. Um, a lot of this is looking looking grim for sure. So it you know hopefully it becomes if there are effective solutions, whether that's taking in refugees, which obviously is a step in the right direction. Um, it, it's going to be tough because we're talking about tens of millions of people that are yeah. in the, this predicament. Yeah, the last thing I'll say in conclusion is uh, if the Western powers are listening to this, they should they should get their act together and, and, and focus on saving lives over making a point. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, with that, good, good cast. Yeah, good cast. <laughs> we'll see you on the next one. Peace. All right, peace, everyone. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We hope you gained some new insights. Tune in next week for another fresh topic. Until then, stay curious and think differently.